All right, let's gather back to our seats. Let's gather in. We're going to finish off the book of James this morning. This letter that had a lot more in it than I anticipated when we began. I thought I would sort of kind of glide through it. And it's really been, I think, a year's worth of study in the book of James. And we're at the final sermon with the last two verses in this passage And these two verses, don't just dismiss them as, you know, we're just finishing the book off. These two verses are loaded with an exhortation of something that's very hard to do in the Christian life. This book has been all about a faith that works, a faith that's alive, that's apparent, that's shoe leather oriented, where you put your doctrine to work, you go after people, and you care about people, and This kind of love that's expressed in verses 19 and 20, a love that goes after a straying brother or sister, is the heavy lifting of the Christian life. This is heavy lifting ministry. And I'm going to read verses 19 and 20 to get us started. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner... From his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This verse is highly evangelistic. It's a couple verses that talk about reaching people for Christ, reaching even people within the body that are straying outside of the body and you're going after them aggressively. You ever heard of the idea of soul winning? You know, as I was uh, raised in a Baptist background, Southern Baptist background, you hear that idea quite a bit, soul winning. We need to be soul winners. And they build that out of uh, a verse in Scripture, Proverbs 1130, that says, um, whoever wins souls is wise. Literally, the English Standard Version gets it, I think, a little bit more clearer. It says, whoever captures souls is wise. It's a hunting term. It's the idea that you're actually going up and capturing an animal. And the Proverbs here, Solomon is specifically talking about winning someone to wisdom. You're trying to win the whole soul, the whole person. In the Hebrew language, it would be, I'm going after the whole person, and I want them to be influenced with the wisdom of God. I want to bring them to God. And in the New Testament, we're called to do that The idea of making disciples. We want people to be highly influenced to know Jesus Christ. Now, for believers, we are commanded to go and do this. We're commanded to go after people and perhaps sow seed. But I think the harder version of evangelism is where you go after somebody who's your friend. Who you perceive knows the truth, but you perceive is straying from the truth, wandering away, and you're going to go after them, and you're going to try to capture them back. That's the heavy lifting of the Christian life. And James pulls no punches right at the end of his letter. This letter is a sermon, and so he's ending with an abrupt charge to action, a call to obedience, where you 
Perhaps we'll be prompted during this hour to think about people that are straying away from the truth, that are wandering away from doctrine, wandering away, wandering away from what's orthodox, or starting to live in sin, or you know people who are in patterns of unrepentant sin, and God is calling you and leading you to obey this text and pursue them to bring them back. Now, I evangelize from time to time. I sort of sow seed from time to time. Sometimes I bear some guilt because I don't open my mouth when I think that I should. Recently, Judy and I were flying uh, down from O'Hare Airport down to Little Rock, and we were visiting uh, my old church, and I was doing a men's conference down there. Judy was speaking to the women, and on the ride down from O'Hare, Chicago, down to Little Rock, we were on one of those little planes, those prop planes that have the sort of three aisles, right? And you kind of squeeze down the center aisle. Some of you have heard this story in Bible studies, but anyway, I'll tell it again. I, I was seated next to a guy. Judy and I were split up in our seating, and I was seated next to a guy that looked Middle Eastern. I thought, you know, I'm not really going to have a whole lot in common with this guy. He might not want to talk to me. I might not want to talk to him. Kind of working through that. But I'm thinking, I wonder if I'm supposed to say something, you know, about Christ to him. Because we're going to be just snugged together, you know, <laughs> seated on top of each other. And I, I look over and he's got a biography. It was sort of the airport biography at the time on Steve Jobs. And, uh, you know, he's died. So sort of death is a theme that could be a segue in, and I'm just kind of going there a little bit and saying, you know, I think Steve Jobs was a Buddhist, right? And he, yeah, yeah, he was a Buddhist. And so we're talking, and and he begins to open up with me about his life. And he's uh, actually an Indian, a guy from India, and and he was a Ph.D. graduate from the medical college down in Little Rock and was part of a, a firm and an associate fellowship up at the University of Chicago as a Ph.D. graduate and scientist. And so this guy's brilliant all of a sudden. I'm sitting there talking to him, and we're talking about, um, you know, his faith. And he says he's a Hindu, but superficially and really believes that all roads get to heaven. And, and so I'm beginning to get this context for this guy where he cares a little bit about religion, but really doesn't want to, to offend anybody. And my heart is also beginning to warm up to him because when I was in Little Rock, when we lived there, we built a house on a street that ended up having several homes built on it. And you know, four out of the five neighbors were from India, just providentially. And one of the families kind of took a big interest in, in us and our kids and sort of loved our children. So we'd be in their home and see all of their sort of pantheistic um, idolatry that would go on. And, you know, they had several Hindu idols throughout the house and practice that. So my heart was beginning to warm for this man because I had a context for where he was coming from. And I thought, I got to deconstruct a couple things. First of all, I have to show him that Christianity isn't just an Americanized religion or even a Caucasian religion. And I said, look, do you realize that around the throne of God one day, um, the Bible promises that from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, all this multi-ethnicity will be worshiping the throne, of, worshiping around the throne of Christ, worshiping the Lord. And the only way that they get there, though, is by believing Christ. There's only one way to heaven, but all of the races will be worshiping God. And that's a beautiful end of the story of the Bible. So I sort of deconstructed that. And then as I talked to him, he was talking about, you know, his Hindu family, etc. I thought, you know, I've got to deconstruct something else. And that is, I have to take away the barrier of, of him thinking that if I were to follow Christ, it would not be worth it because I would lose all of my family connections. 
all of the warmth of my family because they're all Hindu, right? That's something that's very important to deconstruct when you try to win someone to Christ. And so I said, listen, I want to tell you something. Following Christ is a big risk, and you do risk straining relationships, even family relationships. And I watched his face kind of soften. But I said, there's one reason you should follow Christ. And that is because you get to know God personally. You get a relationship with Christ personally if you follow him, the narrow road. So we're sitting there talking. And finally, he, he just sits there for a while quietly. And then he unloads a question on me that was like a gospel softball for me to hit. He just said, listen. I have one question for you. And here it is. Who wrote the Bible? So I thought, wow, do I give him the 30 seconds or the three-hour answer, you know? I took the whole flight. All right, so what, you know, I just basically said, you know, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, authored it through uh, several different authors over 4,000 years, and it's, you know, God's love letter to us because it's all about one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And so I opened that conversation up to him. And then he said, well, okay, you answered that question. Now I have one more question. And that is, why do the Jews and the Islamic people, the Islamic faith, both claim Abraham in their lineage? Well, again, that opened the door again. You sort of roll the tape back and you go, okay, Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, this is what happened. And through Isaac, you have the line of Jesus Christ. And so you come back to the gospel again. Well, that was seed sowing. That was taking time on a plane flight. I don't always do it, but sometimes I do it, and I was sowing seed. But you know what? Oftentimes, God uses seed sowing, and then he uses watering, and this is where 1 Corinthians 3, 6 picks up. Paul says, look, you know, I watered, and, or I sowed seed, I planted, and Apollos, he watered, and God gave the growth. A lot of times people are coming to faith in Christ through a process, right? Where some people sow seed and some people water and some people are sort of part of this harvesting process. And you might remember in your own testimony, there were people who sowed seed who in your life who confronted you about certain things. And then there was a season of watering where you heard the gospel or you you became friends with somebody that was a, a Christian and they kind of wooed you to Christ a little bit more or crystallized some things in your thinking. Or perhaps you were in this category, the category that we find ourselves in in James 5, where you were in the church, and then suddenly your appetite for God, for Christianity, for Christian relationships, it just kind of went away. And the world seemed to taste better. Or maybe you have children who are going through that process right now, or or friends or loved ones where you begin to stray or you know people who are straying outside of the fold and it just sort of is puzzling. But maybe the answer here in the text is that they never believed in the first place yet. And I'll tell you what, going after people like that is the heavy lifting of the gospel. It is. It's where you are evangelizing within the church. It's where you're going after someone. It's like the, you know, the parable of the flock where you have the 99 and the one sheep that strays away and the shepherd goes after the one to compel them back. That is evangelism. Because when a person repents, all of heaven becomes a party. Have you ever read that in Luke 15? All of heaven is praising God. All the angels are singing over someone who was rescued. 
It's not just that they're rescued from a hard life in this life. It's being rescued from an eternal damnation. That's what James is talking about. And he's laying the responsibility squarely on the sheep. So, yeah, just to give a sort of header for this uh, talk. Why should you go after a friend straying from Christ? It's a very difficult thing to do. Not just an acquaintance, not just somebody that you've, you've met for the first time on a plane, but somebody where you're going to risk the relationship. You're going to risk it all because you're going to have hard conversations with this person about where they stand because they're sinning or they've become a skeptic about Scripture and you want to bring them back. Why should you do that? And James gives four reasons. Number one, the first reason is you understand how vulnerable Christians really are. Anyone in the church has the potential to stray. You know, I think sometimes we put people in a Christian box where we say, well, that person can never stray. You know, that person's gone to Bible college. That person has gotten the proverbial T-shirt, right? Can't stray, can't go away, can't leave the flock. And we are fooling ourselves if that's what we think. We are all vulnerable and susceptible to false teaching, people who twist scriptures, and to sin. To the sins that are found in the book of James, if you think about it. Um, James is giving a very hard, potent sermon to a church that was going through very, very hard times. He's saying, look, don't get crushed under the weight of trials and temptations. Remember that in James 1? Don't be crushed. Persevere through that all the way to the end. Don't be double-minded looking one way or the other during a trial. Don't start to blame God if you see sin in your life. Don't shake your fist at God and say, look, why are you tempting me? Why are you making me mess up inside? Don't do that. That's what he's talking about in James 1. In James 2, he's saying, look, you need to be not only a doer of the word of God, but a hearer of the word of God, but a doer. That's the end of James chapter 1. And then James 2, he says, look, don't look down on the poor person that walks in the church. Love those people. Care for those people. Don't be a hypocrite. Faith without works is dead. Your faith needs to look like Abraham. Your faith needs to look like Rahab. You need to be Abraham-like where you'd be willing to sacrifice your son. Rahab where you'd be willing to, to sacrifice your people and follow the Lord's army. You need to be like Job, we talked about in James 5.11, who suffered and endured hardship. Faith is, that's alive is strong, and it's authentic, and it's powerful. James 3, where he talks about the tongue. Remember all of that sort of sin that he unpackaged? And he says, look, don't sin with your tongue and divide the body with your speech. Then don't be wooed in by the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I mean, there are all kinds of temptations that are listed through this book. And James is saying, look, don't fool yourselves into thinking that none of you as a church could stray because he gives a hypothetical scenario where someone is straying or wandering away and they need to be rescued. And though it's hypothetical, it's really probably going to happen. And probably you've had it happen either in your own life or as you've watched other people, where we need to know, why do we go after somebody? Why would we put ourselves at risk and go out there and do it? This is next level Christianity. This is where you, you, you sort of stand up and play the man. Or you, as a woman of God, you, you're putting yourself at risk out there. 
to go after people, to say the hard thing. I think seed sowing evangelism pales in comparison to the heavy breathing that comes with going after a straying friend or relationship, right? That's what he's talking about. But we need to start with the fact that we know anybody has the potential to do this. Look at verse 19. If anyone among you wanders, if anyone among you, that word wanders means strays. It's the word planao. Now, why am I bringing up Greek words and fussing over that? Here's why. That word is the word where we get the word planet in our language, planao. It's the idea of, of looking in the sky and seeing a planet that's wandering around. You know, back in ancient times, people would navigate through the ocean and otherwise by watching the stars. And they would set their course according to the stars or perhaps the north star to keep them on um, target. It's their, you know, ancient GPS system to go the right way. Well, the planets back then were a little bit of a mystery as to why a planet could be over here in the sky at one point and then all of a sudden it's over here. And they weren't as predictable in terms of the astronomy of the time um, for where a planet would be. And so that's where you get the word planao. It's the idea of something is wandering through the sky. Wait, the red planet was here one day and it's over here the next and I don't understand that. And that's the word picture for someone in the church that's just suddenly straying away. It's someone like a sheep that's straying out of the fold. You say, well, is this really a real potential within the church? Look back in Acts chapter 20. This is where Paul takes it on with the Ephesian elders. And you've heard me reference this before, but the language is so clearly parallel to what James is doing in James 5 that I have to bring it up. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Let's start there. Again, James is talking to elders here, and he's talking right before he's going to be going to prison in Roman imprisonment. Agabus has predicted this. He's going to have you know, chains around him as he writes a lot of the New Testament. But right before he goes to be imprisoned, he says this to these elders, very important words to this church. He says, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He did that in, with tears for three years. And then he says in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Watch this warning. Look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Do you see that among you idea? It's the idea that people that are known and trusted within the church are going to go AWOL and begin to take scripture and twist it to hurt people's faith. That's a warning that's throughout the New Testament to be on guard against. So Paul isn't just addressing here the common, you know, Tom, Dick, or Harry in the church. He's talking about the leadership here and saying you need to be warned that fierce wolves are going to come in. And they're not just going to come in from the outside. They're going to come in from the inside. Be careful about that. If you look at Timothy's last will and testament, or Paul's last will and testament in 2 Timothy chapter 4, after he had gone to prison, look at verse 7. 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's in prison, he's written a lot of the New Testament, and he says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and I know this is familiar territory, but look at this phrase, I have kept the faith. 
Paul was very concerned to say, listen, I'm not a fake and the gospel is real and I'm about to have my head severed from my body. But I want to tell you, I did not shirk or shrink back from the gospel. I've kept, I've held on to the faith all the way to the end of the finish line. Why is that important? Look at verse 10. He was inviting his friends to come be with him, like Timothy and others. And in verse 10, he says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has, look at the word here, deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He's saying Demas is in trouble here. Why? Because he's drunk the Kool-Aid of the world. He's, he's drunk heady wine from the world and has loved it more than Christianity. I mean, I don't read this just as, you know, passing stories in the scripture, as things that happened in church history. This is a warning to the church. The, the abrupt ending of 1 John is, is very similar to the ending of James Look at the abrupt ending of 1 John 5.21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay, we're done. I mean, it's the same thing here with James. Look, I want to build a hypothetical but real probable and potential scenario that people are going to wander away like planets in the sky and you've got to go after them. So how aggressive does this going after have to be? I mean, this is kind of awkward and uncomfortable, isn't it? Well, here's how aggressive it is. It's the idea of running after somebody and tackling them spiritually. When somebody's running after the world, the flesh, and the devil, do you think they're interested in hearing you talk to them about Christ? Do you think they really want to be in a one-on-one conversation with you about the Lord and the gospel? Oftentimes not. But... God calls us to do it. It reminds me of, you know, I bring up my family often. You know, they, the younger bunch oftentimes does this thing where one will run from the other one and they will literally grab, you know, from behind, grab the knees and tackle a person down. And I think, I think we need to be that aggressive where we are, we're trying to capture people for Christ because their souls are at stake. They're, they're vulnerable people and we, we want to bring them back. And we also need to trust the process. Just like James said about Elijah's prayers. He prayed and it stopped raining. He prayed and it started raining. The same idea can be transferred here. Going after people is what God calls us to do. So we have to ask the question, why wouldn't God bless that effort? He does. He does. And just like praying, pursuing is God's powerful means for people to come back to the the fold. That's how it works. I was thinking this week about the power of prayer. It's so easy to let ourselves out of praying for people because we say, you know, we don't pray enough. We don't have enough effort or enough passion or enough power. Or I don't have enough spiritual life in me or purity to pray powerfully. But, you know, prayer works. And a, a good friend of mine who was, who's a pastor now and he was a, a college friend he used to wake me up at five in the morning and sort of drag me into this prayer room down the hallway and we would pray and he would pray for all of his family members, you know, one, one at a time, you know, pray for Uncle, you know, Biff and, you know, cousin this and that and, you know, Mildred and nephew this and blah, blah, blah. And it just da, 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 da. And I'm like, what is this? You know, I, I thought we were praying, you know, he's just listing, please God save these people. Well, we did that, you know, morning after morning. You go to bed at three and get up, you know, at five to pray. Wow, what are we doing? 
And so then, sophomore year, junior year, senior year, we'd be in these Bible classes together, and the class would begin with, hey, have some prayer requests or praise time, and he would inevitably bring up a new nephew or cousin or uncle that had come to faith in Christ. For three years, these people got picked off by the Lord. They were all coming to faith in Christ, and it was just God using him to pray. And it works. And in the same way as we prayerfully go after people and say, hey, have you, how are you doing spiritually? Or have you considered the gospel lately? Or, or have you read you know, the scripture lately? Or why haven't you been around church? God uses that. People, they'll, they'll poker face you and they'll look you in the eye and say, look, you know, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. But if the spirit of God's working, there is a tempest in their hearts where it's thunder and lightning, and they're going, oh boy, he's calling me on the carpet. He knows where I'm at. And you're just saying, no, I'm just, you know, having a cup of coffee, talking to you about the Lord, and hey, where you been? That's what this looks like. It's aggressive, but it's, it's just also something God uses and might have, mightily blesses. We need to think about the fact that people stray. Hebrews 2.1, it even calls the church in general. It says, pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. So we're looking to our own hearts, making sure that we don't stray. When people stray, ultimately, 1 John 2.19 talks about how they were not of us because they went out from us and it became plain to all of us that they were not of us. So anyone has the potential to stray. Anyone in the church has the potential to stray from truth, from truth. That's very important to understand. If you look at the text, if anyone wanders away from verse 19, from the truth, you say, there's no way that this person who has believed the gospel his whole life for decades, was raised in it from childhood, went to Christian school and has heard the God. There's no way that that person would ever reject the gospel, right? wrong. The person wanders from the truth. They move from perhaps being, you know, a casual Christian, a casual reader of scripture, a casual person who's casually attending church to perhaps a person who's fading to another layer on the outside and says, you know, I've got some real debates and questions about scripture. You ever been in those situations where somebody says, you know, this doesn't jive with that and I'm not clear. And they move from being a casual Christian to a debater and then a debater to a person who is um, skeptical. They're skeptical of scripture. And then another layer of hardness comes on and they become a cynic. You become, you know, cynical about truth. And then you go a little bit farther to being agnostic where you say, you know, it's all kind of a mystery and the scripture really isn't that clear in general. And I, you know, and then you sort of become this sort of universalist where you say, I know that we're Christian in name, but that's kind of an American thing. And, and really all roads lead to heaven in the end, right? God's going to let people in. Is that Christianity? No, but people stray in that way and they become an agnostic and then they ultimately become an apostate and they find out that they were never believers in the first place. And it's our job to go after those people and interrupt that train of thought. That is what God leaves in the hands of the church to do, and it's hard to do it. It really is. Well, first of all, we understand how vulnerable we are 
and how vulnerable Christians are. And secondly, the reason we go after a straying brother or sister is you understand your responsibility to turn them back. Look at verse 19 again. If anyone wanders away from the truth and someone brings him back, and that's repeated in verse 20, let him know whoever brings back a sinner. That word bring back is the word epistrepho, and it's, it's the word for converting someone. It's, it's calling someone to do a 180. It's to turn them around. It's to bring them back. And listen, I know that I preach a gospel, and I will continue to do so, where I believe that God sovereignly saves people, and he's the one who rescues people from their sin and from eternal damnation. I believe in the sovereignty of God. But listen, not to the expense of our human responsibility to be involved in the lives of winning souls for Christ. The scripture preaches that. Listen to the Great Commission. Go therefore and, and we hear it, but just embrace it for a second. Go and make disciples. What does that mean? How, if God is the one who saves people and keeps people, and I believe once saved, always saved. No one can snatch you from the Father's hand. But, but we're called to make a disciple. We're called to, to go after people. To interrupt people's lives, whether seed sowing or calling people back. That's what we're called to do. Epistrepho. We're called to, to lead the wanderer back, to bring him back, like the shepherd who goes to the sheep that's left the field. Now, what's, what's tragic about a sheep leaving the flock? You know what's tragic about that is they, they are so vulnerable and so absent-minded that, they, that a sheep will put itself in jeopardy, will walk off a cliff, will stop eating, you know, because it's not led to cool water or grass, or will put itself in danger of the wolf to be slaughtered. And that's the idea. That's the picture here. I went to New Zealand on a missions trip uh, years and years ago and had a bunch of lambs laid on my shoulders, and, you know, they're really beautiful, and you look at the different sheep, and... but. Sheep in general are very, very absent-minded and vulnerable. And the sheep will be herded by different, you know, shepherding dogs. And the dogs will literally stare sheep down in face-to-face eye contact to keep them in the flock for their own protection. And will run after sheep. The, the shepherd dogs are so trained and wired this way that they'll literally go on top of the flock and run across the backs of sheep to grab another sheep on the other side to keep it corralled in. And that's very important because, again, a sheep, if it gets outside of the fold, is vulnerable to being gobbled up. And that should be our mindset when we see someone say, you know, I'm going to start this pattern, this habit pattern. I'm going to start going to the bar scene. And I'm going to start hanging with some unbelievers because they're my friends there. And I've got sort of my church life, but I've got my secular life. And I'm going to put myself out there. Now, I have no problem with a Christianity where we are guarded and protected and we go out into the world. And there are certain things um, where we're made in the image of God, where we can enjoy things in the world. But there are very subtle and very not so subtle steps that people take where they get outside of following the truth. They wander away from the truth. 
And wandering away from the truth is not just wandering away from believing the right gospel. It's not just orthodoxy, it's orthoproxy. It's where you start to live in a way that's immoral. 1 Timothy 4.16 is where Paul said to Timothy, Look, Timothy, guard your life and your doctrine. They both go hand in hand. I mean, the Bible says, look, stay on the narrow road. And I, I like to picture two ditches on either side of the narrow road. One is the purity of, you want to guard against false teaching. And you can fall into the ditch of false teaching. The other is the ditch of living immorally. And both ditches take you off the narrow road. The narrow road is what we're called to persevere on all the way to the end. To live for Christ. James 1.12, it says, He who endures to the end will receive the crown of life once he's passed the test. And there's two ditches. And we're called to evaluate people and say, are you falling into this ditch or that ditch? Because both are leading you to the wide road that leads to destruction. Now, we never, we don't earn our salvation by staying on the narrow road. We're not trying to to gain favor with God by doing that. The Bible just says, look, Christians who are alive spiritually, they walk a narrow path. And people who believe they're Christians and really aren't, they wander like a straying sheep and dive into a ditch. And that ditch will drag your soul into hell. That's what James is talking about. Well, you understand it's your responsibility. You say, well, how could it be my responsibility? Well, it literally says that you're bringing that person back. Can I quote to you, um, can I quote John Calvin to you this morning? I mean, John Calvin, he's a guy that a lot of people, you know, some people love him and some people don't. But a lot of people put him in an ivory tower as a guy who was not involved in people's lives. But this guy, as I've read about him, read a couple biographies about him and and some of his works, this is a guy who was a pastor who exegeted the scripture, opened the word of God, and was a pastor to people. And he loved people. And even though he preached that God is sovereign over salvation, catch this. This is what he said about a verse like this. I literally, he said, he, he was, I looked at a commentary where he was commenting on this verse. And he said that, let me see if I can find him now that I've brought him up. Okay, here we go. It says, God leaves salvation in the hands of the church. It's a strong phrase. Not to confer grace, not like a priest. Right? He was talking about that, but he's talking about how we're used instrumentally. We are used to help people from straying away from the flock. It is, it is sheep follow, uh, calling out sheep, just to sort of change the metaphor up. It's not just the shepherds, it's not the elders going after straying people, it's sheep going after sheep. Can you catch that? I mean, in James chapter 5, a few verses up in verse 14, if you're sick, if you're on a deathbed sick, uh, if you're in a deathbed sickness situation, you call the elders of the church. Here in James 5, verses 19 and 20, you're supposed to do it if you see somebody straying. You're not supposed to just call the pastor. You could call the pastor to help or call elders to help, but you're supposed to go after people who are straying. It's a lot like the idea of, Someone being lost in the woods. Somebody's lost in the woods, especially in Alaska, they could die. 
right? Easily. It's easy to die here. You need a park ranger to come and show them the way out. That's it. I was talking to Leo Masters. Some of you know him. He likes to go and um, use his Jeep and, and go around and, and run around in, in the uh, terrain. He said, you know, if somebody gets stuck out in the wilderness, that if they send a text, four or five people who have Jeeps will suddenly drop everything they're doing and, and stop and say, okay, you know, I'm, my kid's over here, right, this, and they will get in a Jeep because it's a Jeeping community, and you will go and you will pull that person out. Not just because that person fell into some hard luck, it's because their life could be in jeopardy, right? And so it's sort of this community of, of uh, commitment to each other where you're going to go after somebody and winch them out for their own personal safety. You have a passion for that person. Well, that passion is how we should be as the church. Sheep going after sheep. Sheep realizing that we are equipped to go after people in the flock. And guess what? That is evangelism. You say, well, I haven't evangelized in a long time. Well, have you gone after a friend lately? That's what somebody did for me at 17. I was in the youth group and was spinning out as this wandering planet, believing I was a Christian and I really wasn't. And the person just called me night after night. How you doing? I just want to get into a conversation with you. I want to warm your heart for Christ. And frankly, I don't know where that Sunday school teacher is Today, I don't know where he is, whether he's walking with Christ, whether he's a genuine believer or not. But God used that person within the church to rescue me from going off the cliff into a Christless hell damned forever. I owe God my soul. But from a human perspective, I owe that Sunday school teacher my eternity. Because he was used to shift it heavenward. You know, there's a lot of teachers I know that invest a lot into their students, both in public school and here at the Christian school. And it's like as a Christian um, teacher or mentor, it's like you're putting coins, spiritual coins into the slot, right? You're, you're either sowing seed or you're watering or perhaps that person's harvested, but you're putting coins in. And it's like, you know, the, the Coke machine where the coins go in and they don't drop yet and you want your drink. And you're tempted to just, you know, bash that thing to get it to drop. But, you know, even sometimes when you hit the machine, it doesn't work. Well, the Holy Spirit takes those coins that we've invested in the lives of people and suddenly they drop. Suddenly they drop. Suddenly things click. And sometimes we have to go after people and set set them up to succeed and say, listen, I want you to follow Christ in a meaningful way. And you could be the difference. It's one thing for a pastor to pursue somebody. It's entirely something else when just a fellow member in the body of Christ pursues somebody. Right? There's, there's no conflict of interest. There's no sense in which you're saying, oh, I want you to come just so you'll attend church. No. It's heart-to-heart ministry where you're willing to put yourself out there, put the relationship at risk, and say hard things to people and watch people respond. That's what this is calling people to do. Rescue people. It's, it's 9-11 firemen, firewomen going back into the World Trade Center when the building's going to drop. 
and you're going into the flames, going after somebody to get them out. That's what this is talking about. John Wesley, many of you know, the father of Methodism, pretty fiery evangelist who was out there. You know, I mentioned Calvin, so I'll mention Wesley as well. Um, both ends of the theological perspective uh, spectrum. And it's a great man. He was quirky, but um, aren't we all? And this guy, this guy was, uh, somebody corrected me. Uh, I think he came from a family of like 17 or 18 children, but about eight or nine of them died in infancy. But there's, as the story goes, when he was a six-year-old, he was in the nursery with his seven other living siblings in the room, and the house caught on fire. And the nanny who lived there um, smelled the smoke and alerted the parents. And the parents um, rose and said, we need to get out of the house. And so we, they swept up all the kids and in the smoke and in the flame got out of the house. But there was one remaining in the nursery, and that was six-year-old John Wesley. And suddenly the parents in a panic are calling up to John and John is yelling out of the window for help. And the dad rushes back in, but the stairs are burning down and there's no way to get to the child. And so he has to go back out. He falls on his knees, praying for for a miracle, committing his son to the Lord. And these other men look for a ladder. There's no ladder to be found. So they create a human ladder. And one man stands on the other person and reaches up and grabs John just before the roof falls in. And so for John's whole life, it was marked by a verse where Zechariah 3.2 talking about Israel, how it was snatched or it was plucked from the fire. And that's what John believed about his life. He was plucked from the fire. Do you believe that about your own life? Can I just go there and ask you about that? Because if you don't believe you're vulnerable, if you don't believe you were plucked from the fire, you're not going to go out and try to help anybody else out of the ditch. People fall in these ditches all the time. They fall in the false teaching ditch and they fall in the sin ditch. And the false teaching is there to cover the sin of the sin ditch. It all goes together. I like the picture of a a narrow road where you have two ditches where one ditch enters into the other. And really you're lost between false teaching and false living. That's where a lot of professing Christians are. And if you don't believe that you were snatched from that yourself, then you'll have no obligation to go to someone else and try to help them out. But God equips us and he calls us to go after people in this way. Literally, the person is called, look at verse 20, is called a sinner. A sinner. Nowhere in the New Testament is that term used for a believer. A sinner is an unbeliever. And James is saying, look, hypothetically, someone brings him back in verse 20. Let him know some things about this sinner who is brought back. There's two things that that a person is to know. And that's the third motivation or the third reason to go after somebody. You understand what is at stake if people do not turn back. What's at stake? Look at this. First of all, a sinner's soul is either one or a sinner's soul is lost. It says, if you turn back a sinner from his wandering, you will save his soul from death. Now, bounce back up to the beginning of verse 20. He says, let him know. He wants the church to know that if you fulfill this in someone's life, you are saving their soul from death. You say, how does that work? Isn't God the author of salvation? Absolutely. But he uses human beings, ragtag, 
fishermen, uneducated disciples, right? He uses educated Apostle Paul. He uses harlots. He uses people who are coming out of all kinds of addictions. He uses all of us to win everybody in the church back to the faith. He uses all of us, all walks of life to go after people. He does. None of us are disqualified from this ministry. It's a ministry for all of us. It's what we are called to do. And they're one from something. Look at this. Save, his, his soul is saved from death. Death here, as James 1 puts it, is talking about spiritual separation from God. James 1.15. A person who sinks into the mire of sin and is overwhelmed by the tidal wave of his own sinfulness, where he won't repent, is is dying spiritually, and James is talking about the end of the line where you come into eternity and you haven't repented and your soul is separated from God forever. We're used to prevent this. We're used in the body of Christ to preserve people from this. You know, children in our family, you know, who either have believed or haven't believed, we're in this gospel ministry with them, giving them the truth, praying that they will be converted, watching them, evaluating them. Well, they made a profession, but, but they're straying from the truth and they don't care about God anymore. Well, as a parent, you go after them, right? And you say, don't you care about God? It's not enough for us to rely on the profession of faith that happened when the child was a, was a baby. It's not enough for us to say, look, they've got this piece of fire insurance because I watched something happen way back when. It's, it's incumbent upon us. We're responsible to shepherd souls all the way through and to keep checking in and asking and pursuing where people are with the Lord. It was what Paul told Timothy to do. Guard your life and doctrine. In doing so, you will save yourself. Same word here. And you will save others. It's kind of a complicated verse. But pastoral ministry is a saving ministry. It's a soul-saving ministry. And guess what? It doesn't stop with the pastors. It goes all the way down to the flock. Galatians 6, 2. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Matthew 18. We don't have time to go there, but let me just go there a little bit. If you were to look at Matthew 18, verses 1 through 3, Matthew talks about this process of restoration. A lot of you know it as church discipline, but really it's the ministry of restoration. Jesus, he takes the child on his lap and he says, listen, whoever causes someone who's like a a child in their faith, a baby Christian, to stumble, to trip up, to fall into a ditch, it's better for that person that caused this child in the faith to stumble. It's better for that person to have a millstone attached around his neck and for him to be thrown into the water. That's how serious Jesus was about people's faith. It's very important. And then he says, look, if we, want, if we need to rescue someone, there's a process to do that. And that begins in verse 7 and following of Matthew 18, where he says, look, if someone is caught in sin, you go to that person and you talk to them about it. Right? That's step one. And if, if he repents, then you've won your brother back. But if they resist you, if that person resists you, then you take step two, you take two or three people with you. And what are you doing? Are you trying to just make the person feel bad? No, you're trying to bring people in that can reason together and give counsel to this person who's straying. And you say, listen, 
Will you consider the truth and consider coming back to the fold? And then step three. Step three is where that person is still resisting the truth, resisting being drawn back, and you actually share it with the whole Christian community. Why? Is it to embarrass the person? No. It's where you're calling the whole church to be involved in the rescue mission. I heard it said one time that there was a lost child in the field, and the only way that through the um, field with the brush that was high that you could find the child was to grab hands together. And so they, you ever seen this picture before where you hold hands and you sort of comb through a field back and forth with a giant wall of rescuers through the field? Have you ever heard of that? And you join hands together as part of a gospel community when you have a straying sinner who could die spiritually and you're joining hands to sweep the field to find that person and rescue them back alive before it's too late. That's step three. Step four is actually where you announce that the person you're identifying is, is not repenting and they need to be treated as an unbeliever. And that can sound very mean and very harsh, but you know what that is? That's the church saying, listen, we're going to pull away the gospel benefits to try to expose the person. Where the person could end up being like the prodigal son who finds himself in the swine pit, right, with the pigs having to eat the pig's will, where he goes, okay, wait, the world doesn't taste that good after all. And I'm going to run back to my Heavenly Father and run back to the flock. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is say, you know what, you're not acting like a believer and I'm not going to treat you like one right now. I have to restrict some of those benefits, right? Even works in parenting sometimes. You have to restrict certain things so that people will come to their senses. Those are the steps of Matthew 18, and it's what the church is called to do. The sinner here can be lost to death, but here's here's the last reason that you'd go after somebody. The last reason. Number four, you understand God's forgiveness. You understand God's forgiveness. Do you understand God's forgiveness? Look at verse 20. Says you you will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This phrase has been sort of left ambiguous by James. Some people say, is it covering the rescuer or the one rescued? Well, listen, this is applied to the the whole church. It means the the experience of the forgiveness of sins is felt in the church. That's what it's talking about. Specifically, this phrase is taken from Proverbs 10, 12, where you're supposed to cover the sins of of an erring brother or sister by not repeating the matter to people. You're not spreading gossip about people. But 1 Peter and also James here makes it more generic to apply in the sense of there is a, a forgiveness granted to people. And you know what? There's nothing more authentic than when a sinning, wandering brother or sister comes back into the flock, when the church commits to not repeat the matter in the flock. To erase the sin from the memory banks. Right? When, when a sinner goes away, he can do all kinds of damage. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. They can gossip about the church. They can damage their own live, life. They can damage the lives of others through their sin. But when someone repents, there's a containment that takes place and there's a covering on that specific sinner's life and it's a covering on the whole church. Right? And it's a beautiful thing. If any of you has wandered away and come back into the flock, if you're treated any differently, then we're not obeying this verse. 
People who repent need to feel full restoration, full covering. This is an allusion of the Old Testament, the atonement, the covering of grace that comes onto a believer who's repented. Grace covers the sinner and grace covers the church. Here's a few points for application. Number one, the power of living faith is felt when you're willing to risk relationships to win straying friends to or back to Christ. Talking about friends. I mean, I am hoping, as I've heard within our body before, that people will go after people. That we're willing to follow after people and draw them back in. Number two, the power of living faith is felt when a straying friend leaves and comes back to the truth, to the community, and to Christ. If people aren't straying and then coming back, guess what? The gospel's not real. The gospel is real, though. And the most authenticating testimony of the gospel is where someone goes away and then comes back. That's what we should see in this community. Number three, the power of living faith is felt when a straying friend returns to the church and love from the body, watch this, the love from the body practically erases the sins committed along with any hurt that's been caused by them. Now, there are consequences when we sin, but you know what? When somebody is coming back, we should envelop them with a community church embrace and say, praise the Lord. We are covering this sin. We're not holding it against you. We're embracing you back in and we're erasing it from our memory banks as far as possible for us to do. We're forgetting about that and we're, we're embracing you as a brother or sister in the body of Christ. That's the beauty of our authentic gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for uh, the truth that is um, ringing in our ears from this. Lord, it's a strong exhortation for us to live out the gospel truth, and I pray that we can do it in a tangible, real, and powerful way. And God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for this book of the Bible. Lord, thank you for the book of James, and I pray that we would heed its own warning, that we would not just be forgetful hearers, but we would hear and we would live out the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's stand up. I um, want to give a, a final word about a couple of things. One, come back tonight, 630. We will have worship. We'll have our communion time, a Thanksgiving fellowship time. And bring food, okay? Because, you know, I'm hungry. You know, we'll all be hungry. Uh, anyway, uh, there's also, speaking of food, there's food in the back. We want you to stick around, shake hands, get to know each other, talk and enjoy the fellowship. And uh, let me pray one more time as you're dismissed. Father, we thank you for this time. And I pray that if anyone here does not yet know you, that they would come to faith in Christ, that, Lord, you would draw them to yourself, and, Lord, that you would bring them into your fold for the first time. I pray that if there are people who are wandering from the truth, that you would use sheep to go after sheep and draw them in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.